you want to turn over to Hebrews chapter 9, we are picking up in our study of this epistle to the Hebrews, and we come now today to the ninth chapter. And as we have been doing over the past several weeks, we're going to be taking the entire chapter. And um, the reason that we're taking the entire chapter is because it's pretty much the you know, the flow of thought is, is taking up the whole chapter. So we're trying to, to keep with the flow of thought. You know, there's different ways to uh, preach from the Bible. And, uh, and there, there's a temptation to just take a bunch of the uh, isolated statements and, and build nice little sermons around them. And you could do that, and I could do that, and I have done that, and I'll probably do that again sometime in the future. Uh, but right now, I just feel impressed that we need to uh, just keep the flow of thought and follow the arguments through as they were presented. And so that's why we're taking uh, larger portions as we're uh, here at this point in Hebrews. We might slow down in the next few weeks and uh, take it at a slower pace again, but we're going to cover the entire ninth chapter here uh, together today. So remember, uh, chapter eight kind of summarizes what the author has been talking about, and he tells us that in the first verse. He says, now this is the main point of the things that we are saying. We have uh, such a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle, which the Lord erected and not man. So this is the main point. The main point he's making to them is that we have a high priest in heaven. Uh, The high priest here on earth served his purpose for his time. That's all over. And now we've got this whole new thing. And remember the context, the people are being tempted to go backward. They're being tempted to go back to the old system. And the author is reminding them that there's really nothing to go back to uh, because that was a temporary arrangement. And it was all pointing to something greater. And Jesus is the fulfillment of the thing that it was pointing to. And so in the very last verse of the eighth chapter, he says to them, Inasmuch as God has made a new covenant, and that's what chapter 8 really deals with, the new covenant. Uh, Inasmuch as he says a new covenant, he has made the first obsolete. Now what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. So don't put your trust in the old system because it's, it's over. It's obsolete. And in just a short period of time, that would become completely evident because Jerusalem would be destroyed And the temple where all of these things went on would be leveled and uh, the sacrifices would end uh, to never be reestablished even to this very day. So from 70 AD to this very day, uh, there has been no temple in Jerusalem, no sacrifice because it vanished away according to the word of God because it had become obsolete. But now as we come to chapter 9, he continues to show the difference, the distinction between what the old system offered and what we have through Jesus Christ. So verse 1, that indeed, even the first covenant had ordinances of divine service and an earthly sanctuary. 
For a tabernacle was prepared, the first part in which was the lampstand, the table, and the showbread, which, are, which is called the sanctuary. And behold, the, and behind the second veil, the part of the tabernacle, which is called the holiest of all which had the golden censer and the Ark of the Covenant overlaid on all sides with gold, and which were the golden pot that had the manna, Aaron's rod that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. And above it, or covering it, uh, the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. So he's describing the arrangement initially under the old System when the tabernacle was first built. If you want to get the details on this, you can read uh, Exodus 25 uh, right on through to the end of Exodus, which is chapter 40, and you get all the details there of the uh, the plans for the uh, the tabernacle, the furnishing for the tabernacle, the clothing for the priesthood, the sacrifices. All of that is there. First of all, it's, it's laid out in the plan, and then there's the actual construction recorded. And then at the end of it all, you had the implementation of it. And so that whole system uh, was established there after the people had journeyed out of Egypt, spent the 40 years in the wilderness, and then, um, or no, actually in the wilderness, they, they did it. Uh, they developed it there. So verse six says, now when these things had been thus prepared, so when all of these things he just mentioned, when they, everything was ready, the priest always went into the first part of the tabernacle performing the, servants, the services. But into the second part, the high priest went alone once a year, not without blood, which he offered for himself and for the people's sins committed in ignorance. And now listen, he says that this was, there was a lesson taught us there. He said, the Holy Spirit indicating this, that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest while the first tabernacle was still standing. It was symbolic, the tabernacle was symbolic for the present time in which both gifts and sacrifices are offered, which cannot make him who performed the service perfect in regard to the conscience, concerned only with foods and drinks, various washings and fleshly ordinances imposed until the time of reformation. So what these people have failed to realize is that the old system, the message of the old system was you're separated from God. There's a distance between us. You can't have direct access to him. That, was what, that message was being sent through, through the old, the old uh, system. Um, and it was indicated by the fact that the, the holy, uh, holy of Holies, the holiest place, the inner sanctum of the temple where the presence of God literally was, nobody could go there. The only person that could go there was the high priest, and he could only go there one time a year. And he had to go with the blood of another. So as he says here in verse 8, the Holy Spirit was teaching us something by this. It was teaching us that the way into God's presence, or as we would understand it, the way into a personal relationship with God was not available while the first covenant was intact. And that's what the eighth chapter talked about. Uh, the first covenant failed, so we couldn't come near to God. So God brings about a new covenant through which we can draw near to him. Now, I've said this many times over the past few weeks, but let me say it again because it's so 
relevant and it's so pertinent. The unique feature of the Christian message and the gospel is that God is inviting individual human beings to come into a personal experiential relationship with himself. That's, that's the, the essence of what the gospel is uh, calling us to. And listen, there's, you can't find this anywhere else. There's no other religion in the world that uh, offers this kind of a relationship with God. Judaism doesn't offer it. Islam certainly doesn't offer it. The Eastern religions have nothing like this. Where, where you as a person, just little old you, little insignificant you, if that's how you feel about yourself, God loves you all by yourself, just you. Despite all of your shortcomings and everything else, he loves you and he's inviting you to come into a relationship with him where you actually, you, you experience him. You hear his voice, he speaks to you. You feel his presence, he touches you. You sense his guiding and his directing in your life. It's a whole different thing that cannot be found anywhere except through the, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so don't forget that. That's the... That is, like I said, it's kind of the distinctive feature in many ways of the Christian message, inviting us into a personal relationship with God. So the, the old system did not lend itself to that happening. And so now in verse 11, he tells us how it happened. It happened through Christ. But Christ came as high priest of the good things to come with the greater and more perfect tabernacle. Not made with hands, which means it's not a human invention. That is, it is not of this creation. Not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood, he entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer, sprinkling the unclean, sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall he be thought or how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. And for this reason, he is the mediator of the new covenant by means of death for the redemption of the transgressions under the first covenant that those who are called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance." Okay, we're going to go on in just a second, but I want you, two things I want you to just get in your um, head here real quick because we're going to come back and focus on this. But notice here in these verses, he mentions two times the conscience. And on the one occasion in verse nine, he says that under the old covenant, all these things were symbolic and that the sacrifices could not make or perfect him who performed the services, could not perfect him in regard to the conscience. And then in verse 14, another reference to the conscience, um, here the, that the blood of Christ will cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. And, and once again, I'll repeat what I've said in previous weeks as well. Here, again, the real issue is the difference between external ritualistic religion and uh, something supernatural that, that God does internally within us, within our hearts. 
That's the difference that's being made. And the point that he's uh, at, at pains to get them to understand here is that these rituals can never do for us what needs to be done. There's no, there's no ritual in the world. There's no external religious um, ceremony or anything like that that we could go through that could remedy the problem that we have. Because the problem is that our hearts are incurably sick. And, and he's speaking, of course, spiritually, but think of it physically. If you, let's just say you had a, a heart condition physically, and the, the doctors just simply said, you know, your heart is incurably sick. There's nothing we could do for it. You, and you said, oh, no, no, don't worry about it. I've got this really great you know, stuff that I can just, you know, I can pour in my bathtub, and I'll get in there, and I'll soak in it, and, uh, you know, that'll, that'll fix the problem. Um, and, of course, your doctor would say, well, good luck. You know, it's, it's never going to happen. It, it doesn't work. Oh, well, no, I, 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 somebody told me about this lotion. If I just rub this lotion all over my body uh, in a certain way at a certain time of the day, then that'll, that'll take care of this incurable heart condition. And, of course, again, the answer is no, it won't. Well, so, doctor, how can we remedy the problem the answer is you need a new heart. You have to have a heart transplant. And that's, the, again, the message here of Hebrews is that all of these rituals and things, they were, they were never able to do what needed to be done in the first place. They were temporary measures, but they were all pointing forward to something that would come that would be the remedy to the problem, that would bring about the solution of the, the heart change that we need. And so keep that uh, in mind because we'll come back to that. But let's just finish up reading the chapter here. So he's speaking of a testament, a covenant, and um, another way to understand what he's saying here is a will. So for where there is a testament, there must also of necessity be the death of the testator. For a testament or a will is in force after men are dead, since it has no power at all while the testator lives. Therefore, not even the first testament or the first covenant or the first will, if you will, was dedicated without blood. For when Moses had spoken every precept to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of calves and goats with water, scarlet wool, and hyssop, and he sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying... This is the blood of the covenant which God has commanded you. Then likewise, he sprinkled with blood both the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry. And according to the law, almost all things are purified with blood. And without shedding of blood, there is no remission. So here the writer is, he's making all of these references back to their scriptures, back to the Torah, back to the law, back to the things that they would be familiar with, uh, you know, talking about the sacrifices and all of those things. And then here at the end of verse 22, he literally quotes uh, verbatim from Leviticus chapter 17, verse 11. That is a direct quote, without the shedding of blood is no remission. And so he says in verse 23, therefore it was necessary that the copies of the things in the heavens should be purified with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has not entered the holy places made with hands. In other words, he didn't go into the, the, the temple in Jerusalem 
which is a copy of the true, but he went into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. And not that he should offer himself often as the high priest enters the most holy place every year with the blood of another. He then would have had to suffer often since the foundation of the world, but now once at the end of the age, he has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And as it is appointed for men to die once, but after this, the judgment. So Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. To those who eagerly wait for him, he will appear a second time apart from sin for salvation. So we stop right there. But the, the thought goes on, and we'll pick that up as we come to chapter 10 next week. And where the thought is ultimately heading is to that place of telling us um, we have open access now to the Holy of Holies, and we can come boldly through that veil. And it's all because of the once and for all offering that Jesus made of himself. So that's a little preview of where we're headed um, next time. But what I want to zero in on today uh, are these references to the blood of Christ. The blood of Christ. So he's talking about the blood of the animals, but then he contrasts the, uh, with the blood of the animals. He says, but Christ... He offered his own blood. Now, let me say, first of all, for uh, some people, this whole idea of a blood sacrifice, uh, like a human sacrifice, or going back further, the whole idea that God would require animal sacrifices at a certain point, and then to even suggest that you know, Christ shed his blood and that's how forgiveness takes place. And that's how the cleansing of sin comes about. You know, some people are just absolutely appalled by that suggestion. They think that that is the most, uh, it's just so barbaric. It's just so superstitious. It's, it's just, you know, rife with all of, uh, you know, the mythological weirdness that you could, uh, conjure up. They, they think, um, and even we, maybe, and certainly probably at a certain time, but maybe even now to some extent, we, we, we question ourselves like, okay, what the connection between blood and cleansing, how does that happen? Because in most of the places where we're having references to the blood of Christ, like we have here, the context is talking about the cleansing power of the blood of Christ. And of course, we even sing uh, hymns and songs that we have written as the church that are reminding us of those things. What can wash away my sins? We sing. We respond, nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. And then, oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. We sing that, but sometimes do we even have the slightest idea what, what that's all about? Now, interestingly enough, it's not quite as strange as you might think it is. Because if you know anything about the blood that's flowing through your veins right this second, you will know this, that that blood is cleansing you. That blood that's flowing in your veins is taking from your body the, the toxins, and it's taking the waste, and it's uh, discharging that 
to keep you and me alive. That, that's happening in our bodies right now. So when the Bible speaks of the blood of Jesus cleansing us, there is uh, an analogy, there's something similar to it that's going on right within uh, the, the body of every creature that has a circulatory system. And, you know, it's, it's amazing, really, when you, when you stand back and you look at creation, you see that in creation itself, in, in the world, uh, the, the created order, God's placed within the whole created order, he's placed all of these uh, hints about himself, about his reality, about his presence, about his power. And oftentimes, through these natural things, he's given us little pictures of how spiritual truths um, work. And I think this is certainly one of them. Uh, Many years ago, uh, there was a book written called The Chemistry of the Blood. And... um, it, it tells us about the function of the blood in the physical body, but then he makes the connection between what's happening in our physical bodies with uh, the references to the blood of Christ. So let me just read you two uh, short paragraphs. One, uh, first of all, dealing with the red blood cells, and then secondly, with the white. And you'll notice immediately the, the connection here with what the scriptures are saying. And so regarding the red cells, he said, the red cells are minute disc-shaped cells containing a mysterious substance called hemoglobin, an iron compound which has an affinity for oxygen, a fuel of the body. These red cells traveling through the lungs come into contact with the oxygen in the air we breathe and unite loosely with it to form oxyhemoglobin. In that form, they travel to all the cells and there discharge their cargo to the cell, thus providing it with its vital oxygen for combustion and heat. Now listen, then the blood picks up the waste products of the tissues, the carbon dioxide and the waste of tissue metabolism, which we may call the cell garbage, and discharges it through the kidneys, the skin, the bowels, and the lungs. And so your red blood cells that are working in your body right this moment, they're working to cleanse us of these waste and and toxins and different things. But then we have a different but a similar sort of a thing with the white cells. The white cells, here's what happens with our white cells. When an infection occurs anywhere in the body and the body is attacked by an enemy army of germs, The news is flashed back to the camp where the white cells are manufactured and immediately the organ turns out a greatly increased number of these white cells and rushes them to the point of infection. We might call this conscription of the white army in time of emergency. The number of white cells is doubled and then tripled for the white cells are the soldiers of the body. They have the strange power to kill germs and engulf them. Then other white cells come in and clean up the battlefield and build new tissues until all is healed and nothing but a scar remains. So built into our very bodies and the physiological processes, you have illustrations of how the blood of Jesus cleanses us. 
And of course, it was the blood of Jesus that came first. So these things are, are, are little uh, you know, paintings, little portraits of, of what came first. Jesus, the Bible says that he was foreordained before the foundation of the earth that, uh, to die on the cross to shed his blood. So this is the plan of God that he's going to create the world. He realizes that people are going to rebel from him. He's going to redeem them to himself, and he's going to do so through the blood of his son, and that's all settled before the earth is ever even created. But as he creates everything, he builds into um, all of creation these little evidences and these things that point to these great spiritual truths. And so the blood of Jesus Christ. The blood of Jesus Christ. Here we have references to the blood of Christ, but of course this isn't the only place. Many places in the New Testament speak of the blood of Christ, and there are three that I want to uh, draw to your attention, and this will be our, our focus now, looking at these three things. So in 1 John chapter 1, verse 7, we read this about the blood of Christ. The blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, cleanses us, and the idea is continues to cleanse us from all sin. So this is what the blood of Jesus does for us. Just like your uh, blood is cleansing your body from what we might call sin, poisonous things, uh, germs, and uh, you know, bacteria, different, different uh, harmful things, so the blood of Jesus Christ, God's son, when we receive Christ, that's what happens. His blood cleanses us from sin. You see, sin has a destructive effect upon us. Uh, sin has a contaminating effect, a, a polluting effect. And it's through the blood of Jesus that this pollution and this contamination and the, the sickness that's there within us it's cleansed, it's washed through the blood of Jesus. And so when we come to Christ and we receive him, I, sometimes you even have that very sensation of a cleansing. I've talked to people that have described their uh, experience in receiving the Lord as, you know, I just felt, I felt clean. For the first time, I felt clean. I, felt, I just felt washed. I, I just felt a purity. Well, you, you're onto something there because that's what's happening. The blood of Jesus Christ is cleansing us from sin and from the moral and the spiritual effects of sin. So that happens as we apply the blood, we apply the blood by receiving the Savior. But verse 14 of chapter 9 says something about the blood of Christ, but it's something a little bit different than this, although there's a connection. But look what it says here. It says concerning the blood of Christ who offered himself through the eternal spirit without spot to God, that this blood cleanses your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Now, this is really interesting. So cleansing us from sin is, is different than this. We're talking about two different things, but they, there is some overlap here. So the cleansing from sin is, is literally like that, that washing us 
clean from the pollution, the contamination of sin. And we sense that, we feel that. Even in our minds, we find that maybe our minds were just so corrupted and so filled with sinful things, and you just feel like, man, my mind's just being washed. But here's a different thing. He says, the blood of Christ cleanses your conscience from dead works. What is that about? Well, here's the reality for every single person, religious or non-religious, it doesn't matter. Every person lives with a problem in their conscience. Now, granted, some people, uh, their conscience seems to be dead. The Bible makes reference to people whose conscience have been seared with a hot iron, uh, meaning that they no longer have any feeling like they should have. Or like they should. No, they no longer feel guilt. They no longer feel remorse. They no longer feel sorry for anything. Um, psychologically, they're called sociopaths. But I don't think that anybody in the world ever goes to a place where their conscience is completely uh, hardened to the point where there's no longer anything happening there. Because everybody goes about life in some way or another trying to justify themselves, even if they don't believe in a God, they're trying to justify themselves in their conscience, in their mind. They're trying to prove something in their own minds even that will uh, liberate them from their guilt feelings or make them feel better about themselves. And, and this, is, this is the truth across the board. And, and like I said, you could be a stone-cold atheist, but you still have this reality at work in your life. And that's why you jump onto different causes. That's why we're going to save the planet. Because I got to save something. I got to do something. I've got to do something to offset the, the, the guilty conscience that I live with. So if I go out and try to save the planet, well, I feel a little bit better about myself. Yeah, I might be this and that and the other thing, and I might do this stuff, but you know what? Uh, I'm, you know, driving a uh, hybrid car, and I'm uh, not contributing to uh, the pollution problem, so I I feel better about myself. Or any, any number of things. I'm out in front of a store with a clipboard, and I want you to sign up for Greenpeace because we're gonna save the whales, and we're gonna do all of this, and... Uh, well, at the end, why am I doing this? Do, do I really care about the whales? Well, you know, maybe. I, I've asked the guy, have you ever met a whale? Have you ever had any kind of like, you know, what, how, what is this passion for the whales? And I'm not denying that people might have a great fondness for whales, but I think there's something even deeper than that. And it's like, you know, this makes me deep down, it makes me feel a little bit better about the issues that I'm feeling guilty over. That I know I shouldn't even be guilty. Why am I guilty? There's not even a God. How can I feel guilty? But I do. You see, you can't escape it. Nobody can escape it. That's the reality of the conscience. And here's what happens. When we come to Jesus, the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses our conscience. It's only through the forgiveness that God offers us through Jesus that we really are forgiven, and then our conscience is free. 
So rather than spending my life engaging in what he calls here dead works, we would call them good works. And, you know, maybe it's not just the planet, maybe it's not the nature and the animals, but maybe it's more like, no, I really care about people and I'm going to help people and I'm going to be philanthropic and I'm going to go out and work hard and I'm going to give and try to help the poor and all of that. And, And of course, all of that's good to do, But if you're doing it to try to alleviate the guilt, to wash away your sin or whatever else you're feeling is making you uncomfortable, then those are what he's referring to here when he says dead works. They're dead works because they can't achieve anything of eternal value or they have no uh, ability to commend us to God. So the blood of Jesus cleanses us from that. And, uh, and of course, he's speaking to Jews here, and they, their whole mentality was one of works. But he's saying to them, if you go back to the tabernacle or the temple, if you go back to the sacrifices, if you go back to that, it, it's all just dead works. It doesn't do anything. It's only when the blood of Jesus cleanses us that our conscience is clean as well. And I realize, wow, I am no longer condemned. I am no longer responsible uh, to bear the brunt and the punishment for my sins. God's taken that off me, and so I'm freed up from this burden. Now, of course, we all know that even as Christians who uh, technically have had our consciences cleansed, we know that we can oftentimes live with guilt. We live with the guilt from the past sometimes still. We make mistakes and we sin today and we live with the guilt of that. But if, if I'm living with the guilt, I'm just taking on board something that doesn't need to be there because the blood of Jesus Christ, God's son, has cleansed me from those things. But that's what's being described here. The blood of Christ cleansing our conscience from dead works. So I'm no longer driven by that conscience, that internal drive to to get some approval, some acceptance. And again, even for the person who doesn't believe in God, they're looking for that approval, that acceptance all, all around them, maybe from a certain people group or whatever the case might be. So we're describing here the, the cleansing effects of the blood of Christ on us internally, dealing with the issues of sin in the heart and the effects of those sins on the conscience. But then there's one more place that we go to with this. And 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19, uh, Peter gives us another reference to the precious blood of Christ that has redeemed us from our vain manner of life. Redeemed us from our vain manner of life. And you see, here's what happens. The blood of Christ is applied to us first in, a, in an internal sense. It's a, it's a change of heart. It's a cleansing of my heart. It's a cleansing of my mind. But then, of course, the objective from God's standpoint is that this will work itself out into your behavior, into my behavior. And Peter describes that as being redeemed from our vain manner of life. So because the blood of Jesus has cleansed us from our sin, because the blood of Jesus has cleansed our conscience, now 
there's going to be a lifestyle change. There's going to be a transformation. There's going to be a different person that begins to emerge. No longer am I uh, going to be the, the selfish person that I have been for so long. No longer am I going to be the greedy person that I've been for so long. No longer am I going to be the hateful person that I've been for so long. You see, these kinds of things in the heart, they, of course, all work themselves out into behaviors. So as the heart changes, the behaviors change. And so I start being gracious to people, and I start being loving, and I start thinking about other people. And I, uh, I'm not just concerned about myself all the time. I, I start having concern for others. I start living for God and not for myself. You see, this is the, the end result of the work of the blood of Christ upon us. It changes our lifestyle. It makes us holy. That's what the Lord is aiming for. Uh, his own special people. He's redeemed us as his own special people who would be zealous for good works, zealous uh, to live out the kind of life that he has laid out for us and described for us in his word. So the beautiful thing is that all of this happens through the work that Jesus did on the cross. And so here a couple of times he reminds us of the fact that he's obtained eternal redemption through uh, the shedding of his blood. He speaks here of the promise of the eternal inheritance. And so Christ has done the work and we reap the benefits of it. That's the, that's the gospel. Jesus did the work. We get the blessing. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin has left a crimson stain. He washed it through his blood, white as snow. And so we just, we rejoice in that. And we let that sink in. And we realize that the, the blood of Christ is cleansing us from sin. We realize that the, the condemning thoughts and the guilt and all of that, if we've received Christ, that that really has no place any longer. And I don't get caught up in these uh, work, working schemes to try to somehow gain God's favor, but my conscience is at rest, and I know that God loves me, and he's forgiven me, and there's, there's grace there, and now, uh, instead of engaging in all these dead works, I can just move forward to serve the living God as his spirit leads, and he's working from the inside out and changing our lives so our lifestyles are more and more as time goes on, looking like the picture that we have in Scripture of his life. And so, thank God for that. He's done it. It's his work. And we have received the benefit and the blessing of it, those that have received Christ. And if you haven't received Christ today, the, those guilt feelings and all of that that are there, they're real. They're there for a reason. I know that uh, certain people would say, oh, no, you shouldn't feel guilty about that. Well, actually, we feel guilty because we are guilty. And the way to freedom is not a denial, 
of the truth of our sinfulness, the way to freedom is an acknowledgement and then a receiving of God's solution, which is the forgiveness and the cleansing that comes through the blood of Christ. So Lord, we pray that the great truth of your blood that was shed for us, that cleanses us, even this very hour is cleansing us from uh, our sin. Lord, may that truth sink down deep into our hearts, Lord. May the truth that the blood of Christ has cleansed our conscience, Lord, so we're no longer having to to live with this guilt and be driven by uh, different attempts to alleviate it. And Lord, thank you that it's through your blood that we live a new life, a transformed life, a a changed life. And so, Lord... We pray that your, your blood would just flow through us. Lord, we just pray for that great cosmic transfusion to take place and to just bring us into the fullness of the life that you have for us. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.